Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Please, sir, may I have some more? More stimulus, more bond yield, and more vaccine. Spring is in the air. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Easy money has been fueling a borrowing binge that might be here to stay, as Fed Chair Jay Powell more or less promised this week in his testimony on Capitol Hill. We want inflation expectations to be anchored right at 2% and not somewhat below 2%. We are committed to using our tools to achieving that, purchasing assets at least at the current pace uh, until we see substantial further progress toward our goals. Even the dovish Powell has to admit that the Fed's policies combined with even more stimulus on the way and vaccines as well could move inflation up. Here's Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers. I don't think the right question is whether this package would overheat the economy. I think if it were passed as written, it would overheat uh, the economy. But it's not just inflation that could be an unintended consequence of all that stimulus. Those rock bottom interest rates also promote so-called zombie companies, firms that don't generate enough income to pay interest on their debt. Those underperforming companies have borrowed $140 billion despite credit ratings below investment grade. Borrowing is cheap. Money is really kind of not an object, amazingly, in all of this stuff. That's Nobel laureate, Paul Krugman. These walking dead companies include many we all know, like Macy's and Carnival and ExxonMobil. Here's Thomas Friedman from the New York Times. They're soaking up talent. They're soaking up capital. Um, and that slows down innovation because the natural process of capitalism, which is like forest fires in nature, you, you clear out the dead wood in order for new growth to emerge, isn't happening. 
All four major U.S. airlines became zombies in 2020 after the lockdowns forced them to limit or shut down their operations. And it's not just obviously air travel. It's, it's the hotels, it's the theme parks, it's the casinos, it's the, the cruise lines. It's, they're all such big contributors. Our industry broadly is, is the single biggest contributor to overall GDP in our nation. That's Delta CEO Ed Bastian. And it's not just that these zombies may be living past their useful life. It's the opportunity cost of their consuming talent and capital that could be put to more productive uses. Thomas Friedman, again. This is Rushir Sharma's point that um, basically when you have all these zombie companies, first of all, they, they soak up a lot of talent. Just got engineers kind of sitting around. Um, and at the same time, they, they soak up a lot of capital. Um, and it leaves less room for startups. One of the first to see what all that stimulus may be doing to our economy is Rushir Sharma, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Chief Global Strategist and author of 10 Rules of Successful Nations, who says the health of our free enterprise system itself may be at issue. Capitalism, I think, is being uh, undermined when you keep on doing these kind of interventions. So therefore, what you see here is a zombification of capitalism in a way. Um, and there's one statistic which highlights this. The number of zombie companies, let's say in the United States today, is 20%, which means 20% of all listed companies in the United States have not earned enough profit to cover their interest expense for three years in a row. This number in the 1980s was a mere 2%. You know, so I think that this is the entire problem today with the way we think about stimulus and what the effects are. That the conventional wisdom and the consensus is that as long as you don't have inflation, there is really no downside to having constant intervention in the markets and to having all this stimulus. Because people are trained to think that inflation is what really should come through as a negative consequence. And the point that I've been making is that there are many insidious consequences of this constant intervention um, and always supporting the markets. And one of them is the fact that you have a rise in zombie companies, which is why I think that productivity growth around the world and including the United States has been so weak over the last few years. So, so that's a critical point, productivity, ultimately, in terms of really healthy growth. Have we essentially suspended um, creative destruction, Schumpeter's creative destruction? Because I think a lot of increase in productivity ha has thought to become from creative destruction. Yeah, because we're seeing it from both sides. Look at what's going on, which is that the number of new startups, that's declining. The number of zombie companies is going up. And as far as existing companies are, are concerned, we have rarely had so much monopoly power as we have now. So this combination tells you that there's something wrong with creative destruction. Now, not all is lost, but this is being undermined um, over time. And I think that these consequences of stimulus and nobody is too small or even big to fail. I think that this is what the consequences are, which are less appreciated because most people appreciate the consequences when there's an apparent crisis or if there's some big upsurge in inflation. But what's happening beneath the hood when you look at productivity and why is productivity declining? I think that these reasons are being dramatically underestimated.
Uh, connect up monopoly power on the one hand with what you're describing here with keeping alive companies that otherwise might fail. Why does the one lead to the other? Is it because money is so cheap so people could afford to borrow money to buy other companies or is it something else? Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head, which is that a lot of academic work here has been done to show that uh, the larger companies get larger because they have access to cheap finance and they're able to uh, make acquisitions and at the other end of the spectrum, you have zombie companies that they're able to stay alive because they keep getting easy and easy finance. So what gets squeezed are people in the middle and firms in the middle. And also it keeps out new startups from coming. That was Rashir Sharma of Morgan Stanley. Coming up, we go through the weekend markets with our roundtable of contributor Jillian Tett from the Financial Times and Peter Krauss of Aperture. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. You can't talk about the markets this week without talking about the back and forth between the 10-year yield on the one hand and equities on the other. Or for that matter, about the real tug of war being played between the stay-at-home stocks, things like the tech stocks on the one hand, and on the other hand, the let's get back to work stocks like financials and like energy. And here to take us through that, we have a very special roundtable. We have Jillian Tett. She is um, chair of the editorial board at the Financial Times, as well as an editor-at-large for the U.S., for the Financial Times, and we have Peter Krauss. He is chairman and CEO of Aperture. Welcome to both of you. Great to have you here. Jillian, I want to start with you uh, because you, in my experience, were one of the early ones talking about inflation. And people are coming around to your view that at least we should be talking about it, even if it's not here. And let me start with the most basic question, I think, which is, what's the difference between reflation and inflation? We had Chair Jay Powell this week say, no, this is just healthy because we're just getting back to normal in the economy. When do we get worried about it? Well, the point is, David, that actually the difference between reflation and inflation really is in the eye of the beholder. It's when prices go up. And I am not arguing that prices going up is a bad thing. Absolutely not. It's exactly what you expect to see when you have a recovery. What is a bad thing, though, is to have a market completely positioned around the presumption that either prices will never go up or that the Federal Reserve will never raise rates. And that is essentially where we've been in the last few years. Now, you're starting to see some investors say, well, actually, we should start preparing for a regime shift. But to my mind, the question is, is the Fed doing enough to make investors understand that there's a two-way risk right now around prices and rates? Or is it still lulling people into this false sense of security 
that rates will stay low forever. And my concern is that it is. Well, well, Peter, certainly nothing in Jay Powell's testimony in Congress this week would really avoid that lulling into a sense that there's not two-way risk. But are, are the equity markets pricing this in at all at this point? I think the equity markets are beginning to take notice of the principles that Jillian laid out. I actually think she laid it out perfectly. Uh, you know, we need a healthy environment, which means that prices go up. It doesn't mean they go up at four or five percent a year, but it does mean they go up at two or three percent a year. That's a healthy environment. We haven't actually been in that kind of a price regime for quite some time. And real interest rates, which are key to the actual economic consequences of the marketplace, have been negative. They're negative in Europe and they're negative in the United States. And the Fed and the central banks around the world have, as Jillian points out, for the last three, four, even five years, been very aggressive at injecting liquidity into the system, forestalling any potential decrease, and creating lots of in interest in negative real rates. And so the market has become accustomed to that as a reality. And when the market becomes accustomed to that as a reality, it starts to overpay for securities that do well in that environment, and it underpays for securities that do poorly in that environment. And if that's persistent, you get a wide gap in valuation. And that is where we are coming into this actually last two or three months where rates have gone 40, 50, even 60 basis points higher. And the volatility we see in the market right now is the market trying to reconcile the points that Jillian made. So, Jillian, as Peter says, we still have negative real interest rates, but they're less negative than they were. That's true both in the United States and in Europe. Are we headed to the good old days of positive real interest rates? And what will that do to the market? Well, I think we probably are heading towards um, the days of positive real interest rates. I'm in the camp of those who think that's a thoroughly good thing, frankly. Um, and I hope it occurs gradually and gently. And I hope that we do have a few little minor market shocks or panics along the way, because there's nothing better to remind investors of the need to guard against complacency than to have regular small shocks. My concern, though, is that one of the things the Federal Reserve has done implicitly, if not explicitly, in the last few years is to not just indicate that its policy is data dependent, i.e. will change when prices go up, but it's also indicated it's time dependent. It's given people the impression that this will last for two or three years. So one way to understand the discrepancy between the long and short end of the curve or between what's happening in equity markets and bond markets is that people are saying, well, yes, we think that policy will be super loose for quite a while because Jay Powell has told us that effectively twice this week. But we can see that longer term, that could create the type of risks that Peter's talking about. So, Peter, there was a time when we talked about basically 60-40 blend in your investment decisions. At this point, does it make any sense to be in fixed income at all? Really good question. Um, fixed income is as expensive as it has been in probably 30 years. You know, I, I'm a little bit of a historian or an economic historian. I like looking at the history. 1982, 1983, uh, inflation, which was real inflation, you know, was seven, eight, nine percent. And the 10 year bonds were at 13, 14 percent. And since then, we've done nothing but see a reduction in bond uh, yields and increases in prices for 37 years. So to think that you're going to stay at this level of yield for the next five years is just irrational. Doesn't make sense. 
So if that's the case and you're an investor, not a trader, but you're an investor over the next three or four years, you have to be thinking that yields are going to rise. You have to be thinking that duration is expensive. And so if duration is expensive, why would you hold as much of it as you normally would? The other side of that, of course, is equities will outperform bonds. By the way, in that 30-year time period, equities underperformed 10-year bonds, which is highly unusual. That's not going to be the case going forward. So, Julian, it sounds like equities might be the place to look, at least initially. Uh, but it depends on which equities. Another thing we saw this week was really what looked to be perhaps a rotation away from tech, which had been doing so terribly well, and into some other places like energy and financials, presumably because of the prospect of our returning back into the marketplace. Is that a rotation that will continue? And how big could it get? Well, I think the rotation is going to be significant for some time. You know, I'm not like Peter, paid to give us, you know, investment advice or precise um, portfolio allocation ideas. However, I think one of the things that's going on at the moment, apart from this recognition that at some point the economy will reopen and there is a chance of, you know, quite a sharp rebound, at least initially, is also recognition that some of the tech stocks might have got way overhyped because, yes, we are seeing a really quite remarkable tectonic shift um, in terms of our reliance on digital platforms. But we're also seeing a world where there could be regulatory clampdowns um, and where much of the exuberance around tech stocks have probably got pretty bubbly. Okay, many thanks to our terrific roundtable of Jillian Tett from the Financial Times and Peter Krauss from Aperture. Coming up, looking for yield in all the right places. We talk with Amy Schulman of Polaris Partners about the promise of biotech. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Markets are pretty much enthusiastic about everything these days, from equities to commodities to Bitcoin. But in a world where everything seems fully valued, where do you go to beat the norm? Well, one of the places may be biotech. SoftBank certainly thinks so. The Japanese firm is said to expand its investments in biotech, including a $312 million stake in a U.S.-based DNA sequencing company. And we talked with one of the people who knows that world the best, Amy Schulman of Polaris Partners, about where there's money to be made, maybe not over the short term, but over the long. Anybody who tells you you can't lose money in biotech uh, would be kidding you. But what you try and do is invest in portfolios. So as a venture capitalist, I never invest in single asset plays because there's very little that I can do to influence the outcome of that, you know, turning over the card and a lot of promising things fail in phase three. But if you're building a platform, whether it's in vaccine development and you're looking at, you know, therapeutic vaccines or prophylactic vaccines, or if you're looking at a modality that can work for neuropsychiatric and oncology, you try and invest in things that can be applied to different diseases and maybe that can be applied in different ways, like a small molecule and a monoclonal antibody. Those are far more diversified within one thing. And of course, a fund is a diversified approach to venture capital investing as well. So you just mentioned vaccines, which are, is on everyone's mind right now. How much has the coronavirus and the really remarkably rapid development of vaccines, how much of that, has that changed your business? Is it already rushing to get into your business now? I think it's had an impact in two distinct ways. One is that it has reminded all of us how important science is. 
how much it matters in terms of the trajectory of human life and in terms of reaching out to people all across the economic and political spectrums in order to change what has become you know, one of the most feared problems of our day. And for a long time, pharmaceuticals and even biotechs were seen as something kind of abstract. So in that sense, I think we've had a resurgence of interest in science mattering to all of our lives. It's also, um, for sure, affected the types of investments we make. If you look at the way in which our lives have changed and the rise in telemedicine, this was something that was on the margins of the changes that were happening, and they're now in the forefront. And so I think certainly in our portfolio and in many portfolios, the investments that we've made prior to the pandemic in telehealth and telemedicine have shown a remarkable and we think durable growth. So when everyone comes to you and says, boy, that's where we want to be, that's good because it's confirming your judgment that that's where people want to be. On the other hand, a lot of interest tends to drive up prices. Is it harder to find real opportunities in biotech now because everybody's crowding into the space? I think both things are true. Certainly, we like to think that when everybody is getting in, that may be exactly when we're getting out because a good venture capitalist figures this stuff out a little bit ahead of, quote, everybody else. Um, and yes, you see big private equity firms, big hedge funds getting into the venture space. And, you know, traditional venture firms are at a different price point and at a different stage of the spectrum. But if you've been around as long as some of the firms have, as long as Polaris has been, um, then I think you're not kind of paying to play, but you're working off of relationships that you've nurtured for 20 or 25 years. One of the surprising things, David, about our business is what a human relationship-driven business biotech investing and venture capital is. And does that mean you have certain relations, you know people who have been successful over time and you can go back to those people as opposed to buying essentially a pig in a poke? Exactly. I mean, it's an incredibly intimate relationship. The inventor, or the academic founder is entrusting you with his or her baby. This is a science that they've been working on in many cases for years. And they come to you because they want to translate it out of the academy into touching people's lives. And we're lucky because we've been doing this for a long time to have relationships with people with whom we founded, you know, five, six, seven, sometimes more companies over the years. Warren Buffett in the past has said he doesn't want to invest in a company he can't understand, and that's why he stayed out of tech for a long time, although he did come around to Apple sooner or later. Is that true in biotech as well? I mean, how much science do you need as an investor to assess who's got the good science and who doesn't? That's a really tough question, because I think you certainly need to understand the science. On the other hand, understanding the science doesn't necessarily tell you what's going to win or doesn't. And so understanding the science is a necessary but not sufficient. You have to understand the commercial marketplace, the team that you're building, the regulatory landscape. And you have to be willing to believe that what you're investing in is not an incremental change because incremental changes are the you know, way of the past in terms of venture investing. That was Amy Schulman of Polaris Partners. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. 
That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. So for the week overall, we had something of a wild ride. Tech stocks rebounded a bit on Friday, but the Nasdaq 100 still posted its worst week since October. The S&P 500 had its worst week in a month. And after spiking up and getting everybody excited, the 10-year yield settled back down just a bit, ending up just over 140 basis points. Joining us now is former Treasury Secretary and Wall Street Week Special Contributor Larry Summers to bring this all into perspective. So, Larry, thank you so much for being here. Let's start with the stimulus. We're on the cusp of getting more stimulus Looks like the House is certainly going to approve it. Then we're going to have the Senate, $1.9 trillion. Whether you like it or not, certainly business leaders like it. We got a letter out this week from a lot of business leaders saying this is a great idea. The polls indicate the masses like it. If business leaders and masses like it, can they be wrong? Business leaders have been wrong a lot in history. And they're right that stimulus is a good idea. Many of the business leaders who signed that letter have also been saying that The level of the stimulus is risky, and so we need stimulus, but not all of this uh, stimulus. Uh, I think that it's better to have stimulus than not to have stimulus, but I think there's enormous uh, risk we are running that with all that we're doing, there's not going to be enough room public investments that are vitally important, and perhaps even more importantly, or as importantly, we're going to set ourselves up for inflation uh, concerns. And then we're either going to have inflation or we're going to have a collision between fiscal and monetary policy to contain inflation of a kind that doesn't usually uh, end well. It's not hard to see the internal contradictions. Um, An economy with 3% uh, GDP gap getting 9% GDP fiscal stimulus is one way to see it. An economy with a net private um, savings rate that's 7 8% um, dealing with an 18% of uh, GDP budget deficit is another way uh, to uh, see it. Yes, there's fundamental public investments we need to make. Yes. There's a need for relief from COVID, and God knows we need to do things about uh, inequality. But I think the scale of what we are doing, a nearly $2 trillion savings overhang, a 14% of GDP, $2.8 trillion of fiscal stimulus, 
the Fed with its foot on the accelerator to the floor and saying that it's going to stay that way for a very long time and be pulled up without a warning. I don't think it's amazing that uh, we've seen more turbulence in financial markets. Uh, some of that's got to do uh, with the micro mechanics of those financial markets, but some of it's got to do with the broader environment. Well, let's go to that point just exactly, because after that dramatic spike up in the 10 years, some people said it was more technical than something more fundamental. We heard from Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed this week, saying, don't worry about this. We're fine. Insofar as the yield goes up, it's really because it's a vote in the confidence on the future of the economy. Is that right? Is that what we're seeing is a vote of confidence in the future economy? We saw a lot of things. We saw tech stocks go way down. That doesn't seem like a vote of confidence in the future of the economy. We saw commodity prices go way up. That doesn't seem like a vote of confidence in the future of uh, the economy. We saw credit spreads widen. That doesn't seem like a vote of uh, confidence in uh, the future of the economy. So I don't think uh, that this all has to do with uh, confidence. It's certainly true that with cyclical expansion, you could expect uh, to see some normalization of uh, interest rates, but we've seen a move that's uh, as large in the last month as in any month uh, in years. Same thing in the last uh, quarter. I don't think anybody should be slave to the markets. I don't think anyone should be certain of any kind of inflation uh, forecast. But I think on risk analysis grounds, we certainly shouldn't be dismissive of the risks of inflation at uh, this point. We certainly shouldn't be dismissive of the risks of an overheat uh, in the economy uh, at this point. And I'm concerned that we're having a dynamic uh, that is in many ways reminiscent of the 1960s, when conflicting demands, great social concern, led well-intentioned uh, officials, terribly dedicated, serious, and thoughtful uh, officials to be too optimistic about what the economy could handle and let things get away from them. And inflation went from 2% in 1966 to 6% in 1969 before there were any supply shocks. And it seems to me that we're at risk right. of making that kind of mistake again. Well, Larry, if we are on something of a sugar high right now, how are we ever to come down off of it? Let me put it a different way. If Jay Powell is reassuring us so we don't have a temper tantrum, are we going to have a temper tantrum sooner or later, no matter what? You know, anytime you say things will, anything is sure to happen no matter what, I think you're on very shaky ground, David. So I'm not going to say uh, that. I think there is a tension between Chairman Powell and look, he's got an enormously difficult job and we're lucky that he is there. But I think there is a tension between Chairman Powell's statements that there's no way rates will be raised without large amounts of warning on the one hand, and on the other hand, that um, it's, a and it's a long way off. And on the other hand, we're concerned and we'll do what's necessary to maintain price stability. 
because while it's certainly not time to be raising rates or even cutting off QE right now, I think there's a real possibility that within the year, we're going to be dealing with the most serious incipient inflation problem that we have faced in the last 40 years. Now, that sounds very dramatic. And in part, the reason I say it is because we haven't really faced very serious inflation problems in the last uh, 40 uh, years. But I do think that we need very much to have a sense of two-sided risk. And right now, I think the risks of inflation, of financial bubbles, of economic overheating, of excessive euphoria in markets, I think those risks are much greater than the risks of deflation, of insufficient uh, aggregate uh, demand. That could change, but right now, I think we are still fighting the last war in the rhetoric of policymakers. We're still fighting the war against a COVID-caused shortage of demand when the greater threat is a war against COVID, classic wartime inflation pressure. And that's, I think, the disconnect between reality and a certain amount of the policy thinking that's underway. Okay, so Larry, we always finish with a lightning round. Uh, Summer says this time we may have room only for one of them. But let me ask you specifically, President Biden this week said he's really going to take a hard look at our supply chain system. Are we going to have substantial differences in our supply chains a year from now? I think we'll be more secure in some key areas. I hope that's what we'll focus on. And this isn't going to become an excuse for a lot of protectionism. That's a real risk in my view. Okay, let me sneak one more in. Janet Yellen says that we are going to be taking a look at corporate tax rates as well as capital gains. Two years from now, will they be different? I guess yes. They certainly, certainly corporate tax rates should go up. The business community was confident that it would think it was fantastic if rates were 25%, and they'd be happy if they were 27 or 28%, and Donald Trump reduced them to 21. That's a very poor yeah. use of resources. Right. Certainly in right. terms of capital gains, right. the loophole for estates, Larry, uh, Larry. so-called the absence of constructive realization yep. of death, we should get rid of that. Larry Summers, thank you so much, our special contributor. Finally, one more thought. Finally, falling in love with our friendly retailer. Let's face it, we've all been cooped up for far too long, and virtual cocktails, well, they just don't cut it any longer. We need to connect, and some traditional bricks and mortars retailers are trying to do just that. Take the second largest clothing retailer in the world, fast fashion icon H&M. Its profits plummeted when it had to close 80% of its stores, but now it's trying to come back, not just online, but by turning its stores into something you just can't get on the internet. Things like getting your clothes mended and renting a party dress and doing your hair. It's all about engaging the customer. And for that, no one comes close to HEB. That's a grocery chain in Texas that is named with the initials of its founder. When the winter storm came and took out the power for millions of Texans last week, HEB was there, making sure they could get the essentials morning, noon, and night. Everything from drinking water to a cake for your son's birthday. And in doing that, HEB cemented even further its close relationship to the communities that it serves, leading people, according to the New York Times, to buy t-shirts saying HEB for president 
or a woman to post a video on TikTok saying she wished for a boyfriend like H-E-B, one that's always there, gives her flowers, and feeds her. So as we emerge from a year of isolation, it may not just be our friends and our families that we embrace, it may include our stores. We may not want them as our president or our boyfriend, but it wouldn't hurt to rely on them in ways we've never thought of before. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.